The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Support for John Taffer's No Excuses comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make, but today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Here we are back for another episode of John Taffer No Excuses and I'm actually in Las Vegas in my home studio which is great because I'm typically on the road 40 weeks a year so it's great to be here and I got to tell you uh, some shows really excite me this one does I have Jim Harbo Jim Harbo is not only a great quarterback from the Chicago Bears is now coach of University of Michigan and I don't only have Jim I have his father Jack as our guest we're going to talk about football we're going to talk about leadership which is really, really important to me. I also have a special guest who's going to be visiting me in a little while from New Orleans, from Spirits on Bourbon. Brad Bohan is going to join me, and we're going to catch up and see what's going on down there in his post-bar rescue life. But I would be remiss if I didn't recognize that today was 9-11. And, uh, 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 you know, it, it, it's important that we just take a moment and look back and remember that, that – uh, 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 <laughs> On 9-11, all of our lives changed. 19 men hijacked four fuel-loaded U.S. commercial airplanes bound for the West Coast. 2,977 people were killed in New York, Washington, D.C., and outside of Shanksville. You know, it's interesting that, that, that 80% of them were men. And when we take a look at who passed away, New York firefighters, 343 firefighters were lost, 23 New York City police officers were lost, and 37 Port Authority officers were lost. You know, this is a moment when a uniform walks by to just look at it and smile, you know, and just to recognize our first responders. And I don't want to get into a big depressing dissertation because life is better today than it was then. But this is a great day to recognize our firefighters, our police officers, our first responders who uh, any day can be a rough day for them. 9-11 is something that we need to remember every year. And uh, certainly they're remembering it. Let's make sure we remember it to them. So moving along on a little more positive note, uh, uh, <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. 
people have been trying to take and mix cannabis and spirits together. So I've heard the word weed ski instead of whiskey. I've heard all sorts of things, but it's all come together now. There is a gentleman who is now going to brew a beer from cannabis. Now, no hops, none of the other typical ingredients in beer. He's going to brew it from cannabis. And apparently he claims that it won't get you drunk. It's going to get you high instead. So we'll see. If he's brewing it, by the very nature of brewing, it becomes alcohol, and alcohol is intoxicating. So I'm not sure if it's going to do or not, but we'll see. Providence Brands of Canada is going to create a beer brewed from cannabis. (laughs) I wonder if they'll set it up as a vaporizer so you'll be able to vaporize your beer. And staying on cannabis, California passes a bill to expunge old marijuana convictions. So think about this. There's... 208,000 cases in California of cannabis-related convictions. And they're going to uh, uh, expunge a whole bunch of them. What do you think about that? I mean, I'm not anti-cannabis, but people did break a law. Some of them were dealing. And, and I'm not certain that, that turning our back on old laws is always the best. So I'd be curious to hear what you say. Uh, let me know. Send me a note. Let me know what you think. How about... I mean, it's just a ridiculous story to me. I can't get over uh, how Elon Musk has gotten, uh, 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 A, sort of away from himself, but his behavior of smoking cannabis on a podcast, apparently his, uh, uh, some of his executive staff has resigned. His stock has gone in the toilet. But, you know, I wonder if that's the behavior that a CEO should be doing. You know, public companies are very subject to appearances. And, and, you know, if if somebody acts a little nutty, stock can go down. You know, in theory, a stock can swing by billions of dollars uh, on the social acts of a CEO if they're not right. So, you know, when you go public and a company is publicly traded, somebody like Musk has to understand that there's a public trust. And certainly he can smoke his cannabis, he can drink his liquor, he can travel around the world, he can take days off, he can do whatever he wants. But when he took his company public... He took a public trust to act in a way that is supportive of their investment, and he didn't. So in essence, as far as Musk is concerned, I recognize his genius, and SpaceX had another launch today. Good for them. But the fact of the matter is he directly, purposefully violated his public trust with his shareholders. And because of that, the stock went down, and many lost an awful lot of money. You can't take investors' money and then act in a way that damages their investment. If I took your money to invest in a bar, I can't go in that bar and get drunk and make a fool out of myself and hurt your investment. And that's exactly what Musk did. So I must say to those who say, boy, he's getting a hard time, this and that. No, he's not getting a hard time. He violated the public trust from the investors that he took his money from. And that is outrageous. So Musk, I think you should write a check for those losses. I think you should step up, and I think you should correct the damage that you did for the sake of your investors. What you own is not a private company. It's a public company, and you should treat the public a little better. So baseball, it's really like a little scary. So baseball will will not achieve the 70 million fan threshold for the first time since 2003. And there's a bit of panic in a baseball world, which is really shocking. Following eight years of stagnant attendance, the average crowd dipped below 30,000 last year. Through 1,947 games, the average 
was only 28,800 fans per game. And some of the numbers are like startling. Uh, the Miami Marlins went down from 20,000 average per game to 10,000 average per game. Just behind them are the Toronto Blue Jays with a drop of 10,442 people per game. So a lot of teams went out and spent millions on players. Kansas City Royals lost 6,000 per game, and they spent $14 million uh, acquiring players. The Orioles waited till March to spend $57 million, and now they're on pace to be the third team in the 57 seasons of baseball with a 162-game schedule to win fewer than, you ready, 50 games. They're going to be 46 and 116. And the Royals aren't much better. They're at 4,913. So do you think fielding a bad team that loses that often affects attendance? Of course it does. So years ago when I used to work with NFL, there was always this philosophy in sports that if the league grew quicker than the talent and the quality of play went down, then attendance and participation would drop from fans. And when we take a look at the kind of play that some of these teams are putting out there today, Kansas City is a good example of it. There's a reason why people aren't going to watch games. We need to look at elevating play. We need to look at elevating excitement. A few years ago, you might recall, they sped up baseball games, didn't allow at-bats to take so long. Speed is very important. And uh, for baseball to succeed, they've got to up the play. And they've got to increase the pace of the game. That's a very, very important thing. And it's a big difference between football and baseball. See, baseball is 162 games. So every game is not that important. Football is under 20 games in the season. Every game matters. It makes it much, much more important. Baseball has to matter more to get those numbers up. And they got a lot of work to do to do that. So, you know, every once in a while I get to uh, uh, do a bar rescue that really leaves an impression upon me. And, you know, it's interesting, yeah, the walls, the paint, the wallpapers, the bar stools. When I look back and look at the room, you know, it, it feels good. But Bar Rescue is really about the people. And when I get to work with an owner who I really respect, uh, uh, unfortunately, that isn't often the case in Bar Rescue. But that is the case with my guest today. The beginning of season two. How long ago, Brad? Did we shoot it? Six years in October. Six years ago, in October, I did Spirits on Bourbon. And uh, please welcome the owner, Brad Bohannon, uh, uh, to the show. Hey, buddy. Where are you at, John? How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm actually in Las Vegas at my home studio. I'm guessing you're in New Orleans. I want to paint a picture for everybody. So this was the beginning of season two for me. I was surprised that there was a season two, to be honest with you, Brad. I don't know if you knew that. I never thought the show would make it past pilot. I was making a pilot and then season one, then season two, and it's Halloween night and we're shooting on Bourbon Street in Halloween. But I walked in and, and I don't think you know this, Brad. You were actually one of the first owners I ever had in Bar Rescue, even though the bar wasn't doing as well as you want, would wanted it to. You were. You owned other real estate. You owned other businesses. You had music publishing background. You were actually doing well then. It was the bar that wasn't, right? Yeah, it was, I I was pretty diversified with my finances. Um, I've always kind of had the been the tortoise when it comes to finances and and spread myself out and uh, learned how to make money. So when I so, met you, I said, okay, this is an owner who's actually successful. I got to go at him a little differently. 
and then came in and we went through our bar rescue experience together. First of all, tell everybody how you're doing. Give us all a brief little update. Everything's great. It's been six years since the thing, since the, the bar rescue. Um, ever, ever since then, we've had growth every month in six years, which is unbelievable. Even during, we've had construction periods down there. We still had growth all the time and getting better. We've made a lot of mistakes and we've learned from our mistakes and we keep making mistakes, but we keep getting better every day at what we do. Wow. What did it feel like when I walked in and what were your anticipations? Let everybody in. I really want them to understand the other side of Bar Rescue. You know, Brad, I always get to talk about my side. Let us in a little bit. You know, were your partners, uh, uh, was Steve willing to do it? What did the employees feel like? What was it like? No one wanted to do it other than me. I saw you in Vegas probably like five years ago and before this even happened. And I watched you and I recorded one of your, your speeches and I just thought it was great. And sometimes I would just listen to it. So I was sitting there and we talk, I talked them all into it. And um, besides them, none of them wanted to do it. I basically made the bar do it. And I can remember sitting out there and you guys were across the street. Uh, you guys had rented the bar across the street and were doing surveillance. And I looked over there and I saw some lights and I was like, oh, shit, it's about ready to get real now. Ah, so, so you had sort of a, an idea that I was in the area. What was it like when I, you know, when I walk in and, and, and suddenly it's getting real? Was it exciting? Was it scary? What was it? What did it feel like? It's definitely your stomach drops when you walk in. You're like, okay, this is going to be, this could go bad. This could go good. The weird thing is I think as the owner and I watch it that you really think maybe they're like, they're going to sit there and you're like, oh, everything's good here, John. You know, you're going to tell us it's great. You still want to believe that because I think you're in this fantasy world that you're doing it right. But then when it all, all the hell starts breaking loose, then that's when you know it really gets real. You know, it's funny. that That's why I think I get people to do Bar Rescue. When, when, and I don't look at the casting reels that the, that the network does beforehand because I want to keep it fresh. You know that. I, I'd never met you beforehand or, or I didn't even know what the heck you look like. But but they always think, you know, that they're the one that, that's going to either uh, be queen or, 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 you know, pass my test or they're the one who's going to outsmart me or they're the one. It's always interesting. And the ones that feel that way are typically, you know, the ones that, that fall the fastest, Brad. You know what I mean? But, but, so, so, so I came in, got a little uh, uh, testy with Steve, your partner. I believe I called him a failure. He said, you can't call me a failure. And I think I said, I'll do it again. You're a failure. And that right. didn't go well. I threw some food at, you, at the chef, if I, if I remember correctly. And then I sort of stormed out. What happened after I left? Well, when we were doing it, it was like to talk about it. We're all, we're going to do this. And I was trying to sell it to everybody that's a great idea to do. And sometimes when you're in a, in a, uh, a position like me is in a bar, it's really not, uh, you're not voting on it. It's kind of a dictatorship. I said, we're doing it, so we're going to do it. And so I remember the food got thrown on the guy. And it was going really bad. And all I was breaking loose. Steve was getting chewed out. And right after you threw the stuff on, on Jeff, he comes in and he goes, Brad, do you really still think this is a good idea? And I'm like, I'm thinking myself, I'm like, I hope so. I sure hope so. <laughs> so you had a moment of doubt then. <laughs> yeah, at that point, I was like, everybody was everybody was telling me not to do it, and I was thinking to do it. And then, yeah, at that point, I was like, I hope this is worth it in the long run. That's funny. So at the first night, even you had some trepidation, if you will. Oh, you always got to have it, and it's like, I mean, it's like being naked. You, you're everything. You have to open up all your books. You have to show them everything that's going on, and no one likes to know their faults. And yeah. no one likes to see what they're doing wrong. They just like to be praised. Yeah. 
Remember when we walked down Bourbon Street together and we walked down to the turtle and, and we had that the whole discussion of, you know, that your success wasn't about the competition. It, it was about uh, uh, you and that operation. And that was a powerful talk, wasn't it? It was really good. And the, the thing that's really worked for me, and I've sat and thought about it a lot, is like doing this for such a long time and I never really had a boss or have anybody to be held accountable for what I do or any of my actions because I was basically in charge. Getting you in my life, it felt like someone I respected and trusted, and it gave me someone that I had to hold myself accountable to. And still to this day, people, you know, they still – because I represent you partially because what I do, people tell you still to this day you'll get something. Brad did this wrong or they're doing this wrong. I'll get the the random text, and like we always say, we work at it every day. We make mistakes, and we just try to keep getting better. I've used that as a tool to make me better, to make me a better manager, to make me communicate with people better, to let me realize that I need to talk to five or six people that are essential in my organization and tell them what I want and let it go down. Um, With your help, I have become a better manager, and I can manage a lot more things at once. You know what's interesting is is, uh, uh, when I look at the success you've achieved compared to other operators – and there's only a couple of others, and it's interesting. It's the it's the two hurricane operators because you were a successful business guy, but the bar wasn't doing well. But you were a winner. You know, when I went to the bungalow bar, the Tuberties, who you know well because uh, 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 you came up there uh, when we did the reveal for them. You know, they did really well with the rescue because they too were winners. You know, they they were successful. The the storm took it away from them. And then Big Mike's, which wasn't far from you, which was down in Baton Rouge, which was the the flood. Uh, a hurricane episode that I did down there. Mike is doing incredibly well. His sales are up over a million dollars. So, you know, it's interesting. When I leave Bar Rescue and I leave, a lot of people don't realize it's not on TV for eight or ten weeks. So it's not like people line up to come through the front door just because I changed the sign. And we try to keep it pretty quiet that I'm there so a lot of people don't know that we're there. So, So if they don't market it and promote it and do it, it doesn't work. You got that. And the fact is, even right after I left, you've marketed the hell out of this thing. Well, I think when after you talked to me, you told you sat me down and we kind of talked like one on one, like men, like off camera. And you told me, Brad, without promotion, something will always happen. Nothing. So you have to promote this. And I took that and I took the outline of what you gave me. That some stuff would work better than others. Some stuff that I wanted to adjust to make it work more for me. Um, I wanted to make it a success not only for me and my family, but for you and your program because I wanted you guys to do succeed too. And I want to re- represent Bar Rescue and John Taffer well every day. You know, that, that you're the only one out of 169 that I've done that, that I think would actually say that and really mean it. But it's true. You know, you always make the show proud. Uh, I always get copies of the tweets and the posts that you respond to people with. You respond to everyone. And I love to tell stories of things that people didn't see on Bar Rescue. And there was a fun moment between you and I. And this was just before the reveal. So at this point now, this is day five. I've been there with Brad. So the first day is a little rough. He goes home, probably doesn't love me that first night. By the second or third day, we're starting to develop a pretty good relationship. And by the time it's time for the reveal, uh, I'd say we got a pretty darn good relationship. So things are a little lighter. They're not as intense. And one thing you cornered me on, buddy, was that cup for the for the drink. And I 
beat you up on the green drink and said, you got to have a blue drink. It's got to be a different color. But you were really successful and you didn't like it. So you pushed back at me and said, Taffer, you better have a great mug. This better be great. That was a real point of contention for us. Talk about that for a minute. Well, I just felt like that was something that I was an innovator in the bar business. I was one of the first ones to develop as a go cup. Um, I felt like it was something that my lane that I felt I, I knew better than almost anybody out there. And I was going to let someone put it in someone else's hand. So I was going to let you know, I was going to let you do it. But it better be good. And I don't want—I didn't want the JV team working on it. I wanted—I wanted your hands on that, touching it from from beginning to end. And I, I was very happy when I saw it wasn't that red cup that you pulled up to try oh, to yeah. make me look. <laughs> so let me tell everybody that story because it's a funny story. So it's reveal time, and I've already revealed the outside, and now we're inside, and I'm behind the bar, and I'm revealing everything behind the bar. So Brad, his partner Steve, and, and the entire uh, crew are standing on the other side of the bar, and I look at Brad, and I say, Brad, you challenged me. You told me I had to get you the best cup that I could possibly find. I wanted to make sure it was very visible, easy to see, and I pulled a red plastic cup up from under the bar. And for about a half a second, I had you. <laughs> it was bad. I was thinking, this, this isn't going to be work. This is going to work out for sure. But then I pulled out that skull mug. What did you think when you saw that? I was thinking, well, this, this can't work. I know there's a 3% failure rate on every light, and I know that that thing's got 30 lights on it. And then you told me, go, Brad, this is just this is just the outline you make this and make this work for you. This is just to start you out. Yeah. You know, you know this story, but our, but our audience doesn't. When I was doing uh, spirits on bourbon, I really had a hard time to try to come up with a concept because I think there's what about 57 bars within just a few blocks of you, if I remember correctly. So I had to come up with something that would stand on its own. So I had one of my crew members do some research on the building, which was over a hundred years old, if I remember correctly. And I found out that there was a barber named Edward Dubois, who had a barber shop in your building, and he was murdered, I believe, by one of his mistresses. So from that story, I created Spirits on Bourbon, Edward Dubois' spirit. I created the barbershop chair, the resurrection, Edward Dubois' resurrection, and the entire concept came from that story. And I think, Brad, that that's probably why it lasts, because it makes sense, the cocktail and spirits, and, and the pieces sort of came together all because of Edward Dubois. And... and it's great when concepts come together that way with a creative thread. And do people ask about spirits or Edward Dubois, resurrection, or what does it all mean? Oh, all the time. We got the ghost hunters even come in there. We let them come in after we close sometimes. And they call up his spirit. What time they got a knife moving. They got some stuff moving. And they got to talk. They started talking to Edward. We even put a, a fake graveyard in the back of our courtyard with, with your tombstone in it. And they're going, does Taffer know about that? Oh, no. I wouldn't. He's going to be mad if he sees that. <laughs> but I have seen it. So, yeah, I know. I thought it looked pretty cool. But people love taking pictures with it. So that barbershop chair is now one of the most photographed attractions on all of Bourbon Street, isn't it? It really has worked, and it's been a lot of fun. It does great sales for you, doesn't it? Oh, it does wonderful sales. Not only does it do sales, I mean, it puts videos out there. It, it pays for people. People come here and pay me and buy drinks and market me for free. Which people don't realize the value of that. When yeah. people are having time, a good time, they're going to put it out on social media. And instead of me buying five thousand dollars worth of ads, they're doing it for they're spending fifty dollars with me and advertising my place, which is great. So nobody gets in a chair and doesn't take a picture, huh? Yeah, it's just a moment you got to oh, remember when you're in, on Bourbon Street, I guess. 
So, so you, you buy these mugs 36,000 at a time and have a warehouse to hold them in. That's a business unto itself, isn't it? The warehouse paid for itself within two years just on able to buy everything in bulk. It's been a neat adventure, and it's, it's, been, it's just another process of things that I've been able to adapt and to learn how to do and save money in other projects that I do, too, just by being able to buy. Whenever I have a bar rescue owner who doesn't know how to market, I always have him call Brad. And Brad always is happy to talk to them. He's part of the Bar Rescue family. You're also always happy if I call you and say I'm doing something for charity, you're the first one to write a check, buddy. You know, and, and you always step up to do anything for the Bar Rescue family. You're an incredibly appreciative owner and good guy, Brad. And, and to think that, you know, the work that I did down there with you for those days have made such an impact upon yours and Steve's life. It's an amazing thing. And how many tourists do you think have been through Spirits on Bourbon since we've opened it? Uh. I, I couldn't even count. There's probably been there's been millions of people that even kind of just came in there to see it. And with your help, if you think about it, with this help and changing the way that we're making a lot more money, is I've been able to build a park for my hometown for disabled kids. I was able to buy a battered women's shelter from at my hometown. So there's been a lot of things that I've been able to feel to give back what you gave to us. Yeah, that's awesome, buddy. You've also given back to the other hurricane episodes that I've done, and you've stepped up anytime I've asked you to. You know, there's there's two lessons to learn here. First of all, for, for business owners, you know, look at Spirits of Bourbon. We didn't rely on a brand. We came up with the barbershop chair. We came up with the resurrection cocktail. Brad bought a hearse, you know, and created Spirits on Bourbon with a barbershop chair and a hearse. It's a bunch of different pieces that all come together to create success. It isn't putting a sign on the building and sitting back and waiting for it to happen. Then I come with Bar Rescue, give him a national television show, and still Brad doesn't sit back and wait for it to happen. He goes out and makes it happen. And there's a lot to learn here as an entrepreneur. There's also something else to learn here personally. I am quick to do anything for Brad because Brad is quick to do anything for charity and to give back. So make no mistake, when we give back, we get back. And it's supporting a community that allows them to support us. Buddy, I'm very proud to call you my friend, Brad. We've known each other a pretty long time now. We've been through a lot together. And it's all been a really great and positive experience for me, buddy. I wish you continued success. Well, thank you. And I feel I'm blessed to know you. And I'm I'm happy to be able to call you a friend and someone that I can lean on when I need it. And I'm there for you if you ever need anything from me. So, And I hope to see you soon. Uh, you will. I'll be down in a few weeks, buddy, and, and you can count on it. And where can people find Spirits on Bourbon online? Spiritsonbourbon.com, um, and it's just www.spiritsonbourbon.com. Then we have uh, the Instagram, Spirits on Bourbon, and the Twitter, Spirits on Bourbon. When, you're, when you come in, just say, come say hi. One of us is there. Uh, we'll love to tell you some stories about, about the misadventures with Bar Rescue. And uh, uh, I, get to, I tell everybody I talk about you more than I do my wife, which is kind of weird. <laughs> well, you talk about her to me more than you do anyone else because you love her so much. So that's, that's <laughs> yes, I'm, I know. Lucky. Don't I'll go to Bourbon Street without going to Spirits on Bourbon and make sure you get your picture in that barbershop chair because uh, uh, it's one of the, the most fun things you could do on Bourbon Street. Great to talk, buddy. I'll see you soon. See you soon, John. Thank you. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Tapper continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Man, I got the fever. NFL and NCAA football is on fire, and it's time to take your pigskin knowledge to the bank at betdsi.com. 
They're celebrating 20 years online, and they've built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. And to help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is doubling your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit to start winning and get up to $2,500 free. That's double your money right from the get-go. So join BetDSI.com today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll straight away. That's promo code TAFFER101 to get in the action and get paid. And once you become a member and have all this sweet bonus money, what you should do is join the BetDSI 2018 Handicappers Cup. I'm doing it. So without further ado, here are my week two picks. For the Browns at New Orleans, I'm going Saints by eight and a half. For the Los Angeles Chargers at Buffalo Bills, I'm going to Chargers by seven and a half. For the Giants at Dallas Cowboys, I'm going Dallas by three. And for the Panthers at Falcons, I'm going Atlanta by five. And last but not least, the Eagles at Tampa Bay, I'm going Eagles by three. So let's see how I do. I'm hoping to win some money at BetDSI. Are you? Man, I know a lot about growing business, and a right hire can make a huge impact on your business and your success. That's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find that person? You could try posting on job boards. I've done that. But can you really be sure the right person sees your job? I have so many interviews and waste my time that way. Instead, find the right person who will help you grow your business. Use LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network. People go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover new job opportunities, and 70% of the workforce is already there. On LinkedIn, your job will be seen by more of the right people, and you can only really reach them on LinkedIn. So hurry to LinkedIn.com slash Taffer and get $50 off your first job post. That's right. Go to LinkedIn.com slash Taffer to get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Taffer. Terms and conditions apply. Are you a prosumer? I am. It's a new word. I just learned it. A prosumer is a consumer who buys professional-grade computer products because they know the difference. You know, I got to tell you, when it comes to technology, the difference between consumer-grade and business-class PCs is just as different as an economy in a first-class seat in an airplane. And it's worth upgrading to an HP business class PC. First of all, the performance is far superior. It's faster. The battery lasts longer. You have 24-7, 365 dedicated support. Software and security is far better with bundled software that is not available on consumer-grade PCs. Design, graphics, forget about it. Far superior on a business class PC. And reliability? They're tested for 115,000 hours in HP's own laboratories to make sure it's dependable. So if you're going to buy a PC, buy a business class PC from HP. And right now, you get an extra 10% off on select 8th generation Intel-powered HP PCs with the code TAFFER till September 17th. So go to hp.com slash TAFFER and get your business class PC. You'll really be glad you did. I am. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. So, so, <laughs> so, first of all, I lived in Chicago when you were with the Bears, so I must say that, that uh, uh, I, this doesn't happen often to me, but I am a little starstruck by you because you've given me such amazing moments, but there's so much that I'm curious about you and, 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 and you know, from San Diego to Stanford, the 49ers, and, and uh, I had a big 
Two big questions for you. I got a bunch more, but two big ones. I'm not buying your starstruck by me. <laughs> come on. Come on, John. Okay, so when you left the NFL and went, and went obviously, to Michigan, was that an easy choice for you because you're Michigan background? Yes. I, uh, it, was a, it was an easy choice. It just uh, felt right for, uh, for everybody, the whole family, and, and what I really wanted to do. Um, uh, I wanted to coach. I wanted to coach at my school, and I uh, wanted my family here uh, living where I grew up. You know, I, I grew up here for seven years as a kid, went to elementary school, went to part of high school, and, you know, just uh, had so many good memories. And, and now to see four years later the kids having a ball. My mom and dad live right next door to me, John. Oh, uh, that's unbelievable. So do they come to games often? They uh, come to every game unless they go to Baltimore or they go to Georgia. My <laughs> my sister's husband's the head basketball coach at Georgia, and my brother, of course, John Harbaugh's the head yep, coach yep. of the Baltimore Ravens. So they they spread it around, right, Dad? But try, uh, try to touch as many bases as you possibly can. But the interesting thing, John, is that we're down we're just down the hill. We can see their house, some trees there, and a little pathway. Picture this. It's it's in July. It's about 8.30. We're just getting out of bed. We still are in our bedding clothes and coffee's brewing. And you look out the window and here comes one head coming over the hill. Then two heads coming over the hill. Then three coming. And the first thought is get to the door. Lock the doors and turn out the lights. <laughs> Maybe they think we aren't here. But they're so much quicker than we are. They're in the house. <laughs> They got it figured now out. Now it's there. breakfast and Oreos and chocolate milk and all the things they can't get at home. They get with Yai and Papa. <laughs> they get they get all the chocolate they want. They get the Oreo the Oreo cookie jar is always full. Plus, my dad's got a soccer. He's got a he got soccer nets in the basement, and he's got a little baseball field in the in the side yard. So uh, it's it's the Midwest. You know, at its finest, John. You, you can my brother that. went to Michigan Law. So when I was younger, I used to go up and I and I used to hang in a quad, and and, and it was it was beautiful up there. So wow, didn't uh, know that. What year? So, so, what year was he there? Oh, uh, he year. was there in the uh, mid seventies. That was right. That's right in our wheelhouse. Yeah, it sure is. So, 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 Jim, you've always been such an example to me as a leader, and. Uh, uh, what would you say to yourself if you were back in high school? What what really surprised you? What's different about being in the position versus about dreaming about the position? And what are the big lessons you would have taught yourself if you could talk to yourself 30 years ago? Mm. Well, uh, it's interesting that you say that because I got my I got my dad, Jack, right here next to me, uh, yep. who's my dad, but also my best coach I ever had. He learned me to do, John what he told me to do and do it. And I just started doing exactly how he told me to do it uh, with numbing repetition. And I just kept, kept having success doing it uh, the way he told me to do it. And that was, that was, uh, that was my template. And, and I really believe, you know, fundamentally that, uh, you know, if youngsters want to be good at sports, uh, just listen to what your coach tells you and do it as hard as you can. Um, translate the same thing into school. You know, do what your teachers tell you as hard as you can to the best of your ability, and uh, things are gonna are gonna work out for you really, really good. Um, 
you know that uh, and I've, I've never and I've never very really veered off of that and in really life has proven that that uh, you know have a good coach or have a go-to person like you know your dad or, or your coach or your teacher and um, you know do what they tell you to do as <laughs> best the best you can that's my simple advice <laughs> Jack w- was was Jim a, a leader of, of kids when he was a little kid uh, yes yeah, very much so uh, from the very time that i can remember that he could walk around and talk and he started he was with his brother he's so fortunate john is only uh, 14 months older than jim so they were almost like twins and we moved around a lot we moved 18 times we coached at 14 different junior high schools high schools colleges along our coaching career so every year every year or so you know we would we would move and take another job and pack up the house and Jackie would get the kids in school, out of school. She would sell a house, buy a house, negotiate the washer and dryer. She did all those types of things, and, and we just moved around. And it was kind of us. It was just our family, and we had to go into a community, and we would adjust and, and try to try to do as well as we could. But to answer your question, yes, Jim and John fed off of each other, and, and they were they were true leaders. They uh, they organized the, the the neighborhood. You know, we're gonna be we're gonna meet here at seven thirty in the morning. Uh, you bring the bat. Uh, we're gonna bring the ball. Mm-hmm. We have no bases. We'll just put some rocks down there somewhere, and we'll. Jim was and John would you play right field? I don't want to play here playing right field and <laughs> get the batting order worked out. And uh, so, arguments. We had no umpires, so they had to. So they were negotiating the, the umpire. And, and I can say of all those places the 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 faces changed the names changed but the way they they conducted themselves and and you didn't worry about him you just at eight o'clock you actually shoved them out the door and got them moving and they would come back at night and and uh, they were just out playing and and uh associating and getting along and sharing with others but i i mean that that i mean says i was a leader i mean i really i had an older brother and uh i just i did what he you know he i was a good follower I really was. I got to play with all of John's friends and uh, and just kind of watched him do it. And uh, then it, it came to the point where they they got a little older, and then they they started moving in some different directions, uh, like teenagers and high school kids do. And then and then I just kind of picked up where he left off and did what did what he did. But I I was very fortunate to you know, watch him do it, and and then uh, and then that that seemed to that became a kind of a theme too as uh, as I got older with uh, the older brother and watched him go to college and or watched him finish high school and and then uh, kind of did what he did. And then he went to college, kind of picked his brain, and then he went into coaching, and then I went into coaching and picked his brain. And uh, it's been, I've been very fortunate. You know, it's interesting. Uh, so many families, Jack, will say, say, oh, well, I don't want to move. I don't want to take my kids out of school. Oh, no, I don't want to change schools. Oh, it's too traumatic for the kids to <laughs> schools and i've always said as a businessman you know if you limit yourself geographically right. and certainly in your business even more than mine right. then you always limit opportunities when you start to put boundaries around how far you're going willing to go to advance your career do you think jack that, that moving like that toughened uh, the boys up a little I, I do now i worried about it and my wife jackie we i don't both, think you worried we, much. we did. did you were you actually worried <laughs> i don't buy that either <laughs> I was very perplexed and worried and concerned, but uh, looking back at it now, it's one of the best things. We an example, John, would be uh, in 1979. I was here at Michigan. I had a chance to go to Stanford. John Elway was a, a sophomore at, 
at Stanford, and I had a chance to go out there as a defensive coordinator. Dennis, Denny Green was the uh, offensive coordinator. John Fossil was a quarterback coach, and and Jim was a fini- finishing his sophomore year at Pioneer High School at Michigan. He was the starting quarterback as a sophomore, had that opportunity, and uh, took it. And uh, I thought to myself, you have to be insane moving him across the country. He had the starting position. He's got to go out there and compete with someone that's playing there that might be a senior or, or junior. How fair is this to him? And I look back at the now, and it might have been one of the, the great, great things that ever happened because he was exposed to John Elway and, and Jim Plunkett and uh, Steve Dills. And Steve Dills. Benjamin. What was Benjamin? Guy Benjamin. Guy Benjamin. They would meet there in the summer, and they would – they would throw the ball around. They had seven-on-seven seven out there, which we didn't have here at Michigan. So three days a week in the summer, he was out with in passing leagues uh, playing basketball, and it just it just broadened him into to what you mentioned. It, they have so many friends now at Stanford. We have, they have friends at Iowa. They have friends at uh, all the different stops that we made along the way, and I really think it did, uh, it did help them. It's interesting. I wonder if things like that don't help build leadership. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, Jim, because you had to walk into a new school, win people over socially, right? Find your place in the society of each school. Uh, 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 and you couldn't do that all with sports. You know, there, there, there were other things in your life. that. that so in essence, it, it, it made you accountable to yourself, I think, more often. And it put you in a position where you just got good at, at – at, positioning yourself with new people. Uh, do you think that contributed to your ability as a leader? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, uh, sports was, I mean, that might have been, there might have been a few other things I had going in my life, but uh, 98% of it was sports, <laughs> I think, uh, looking back. The, my dad always did a, did a really good thing. Whenever we moved, and I think we moved, boy, I don't know if I've ever counted, 10, 10 12 times before I was 18 years mm-hmm. old. But um, he would always move us. He would get a new coaching job, like in when the season was over, like in December or January, and then he would go. He would go first, and then uh, by around January, we were moving to the new place. Maybe sometimes it was February, but usually by January, by the start of the second semester, we would the whole family would move. And I, I love my dad's philosophy on that. You know, it was like we're family. We're gonna, we're all going to be on the same roof, <laughs> and uh, we're going to make that happen as fast as as humanly possible and it was good for good for us because even if we got to the new place you know by march you still had a couple months in school where you could meet other kids and uh you could get signed up for the the summer you know the summer baseball team and the and the football team and um so we and you had friends going into going into the summer and so i thought that was uh i thought that was another genius move by jack harbaugh and for you know just a piece of piece of advice if i may you know as a as a as a kid if you got a you know parent that's that's moving uh you know don't do these the the dad goes and then six months later that you know let the kids finish school philosophy but Jim, which a lot of people after, do after the conversations we had last week and the week before i think he just wanted the meals and everything else the way your mom <laughs> took care go. of them he didn't want her that many miles away from him because it would have been that much he probably didn't want to take, pay two mortgages or two <laughs> rents. nobody want to do that uh <laughs> let, let me let me tell you a story and but this, that was it was good though jim and i have not discussed this story this is a, a story that's that's that, that comes into memory because of the things we're talking about we moved to stanford 
Uh, John didn't really come with us because he had finished his year at Pioneer and he was going to Miami of Ohio to go to school and to play football. So it was just kind of Jim and Joni that, that moved out. And we went through a phase. Just where you and me for the first like a month. We were together out there a in, in a house. Guy gave us his house when yep. he was over in the Middle East. And it was just you and me starving to death out there. <laughs> literally, literally. Literally. With, no, with nothing to do. I guess I was right. <laughs> I figured out how to make a TV dinner. And that's what we ate. Remember when we t- Jack Harbaugh cannot make anything. Remember when we had we not had, even a sandwich. We had a. Remember the orange juice used to come into plastic containers, so we wanted to make it cold real fast. So we put it in the freezer, and it froze. And then the next thing you do to unfreeze it, what you do is you put it in the. I don't think they had mic. May put it in the oven because we didn't have microwaves in those days. So we put it in the oven, and the next thing, boom, it blew up. And there was orange juice, I mean, through the entire kitchen. It was in, I mean, it was all over the, the place. And then, and then we thought, well. We cleaned it up. We cleaned it up. The first bad well, move is putting it Can we ever the, tell Frank Atkinson <laughs> that we, we had the. Uh... Frank, but let me just tell you this quick story. We moved out there, and now we're a family, and it, it's the fall, and Jim's playing football, and he won the starting position. And We moved out in June. You and me moved out. But the, the family, when the family when joined the family us, came the, out, the, yeah. when they came a little bit later. But then. But we were out there, and, and Jim's hanging around the house. I mean, w- don't you have a place to go? No, no, I'm not going anywhere. And so, it's, well, this is not good. we got to sit down and talk about it. And he kind of shared with us that, you know, the parties they were having out there, there was some things going on that he hadn't really seen before. And, and rather than be a part of it, he, he just was going to stay at, stay at home. And we might have talked about it a little bit, and then, and then pretty soon, uh, the way I'm telling it, maybe you're looking at me like you, you've never heard this story before. But uh, what I'm happened? Interested. But what happened is that, that all at once there were a couple kids off the friends and people that started to say, well, you know, we, we really don't like that either. And some of the things that are going on and we see that you aren't coming around, maybe we, we should come together and form a, a little bit different group. And then they kind of went off and, and did and then pretty soon the group over here was small. There were like one or two of them. And everybody had kind of gravitated to this group over here that wanted to do things right, didn't want to get into the tomfoolery yeah. That, yeah. of some of the things were going on there. And I thought that was amazing for someone that had been there just for a month or two to try to change the the culture of of some of the things. Am I, am I way off on that? Do you have any recollection of that at all? Yeah, yeah. The uh, Friday and Saturday nights, there was, uh, there was nothing to do but – um, well, people were yeah doing the parties and stuff like that, and I really didn't want to go do that. So uh, went started going to Robles, uh, which was the intramural gym at at Stanford, and and figured out how we could get in there on on Friday and Saturday night. Dave Feldman, who's became a broadcaster, and Bill Pito, who also became a broadcaster, and Nick Saharius, and and uh, we ended up having a heck of a basketball team too because we were. <laughs> We, we weren't screwing around on the weekends. We were we were playing uh, basketball at, with the with some of the college kids over at Stanford. But uh, that was a, that was a great time. I that's uh, that's one of those memorable times in my life, uh, getting to hang out with you. And you were working every day, and I was uh, I had a job. I was working at the pool, the uh, Stanford pool. Uh, I had to be there like six in the morning and. Helping cl- change the chlorine. I wasn't like a lifeguard or something. I was, uh, I was in the bowels of Testing the everything. The bowels of the uh, yeah, Sniff, sniffing chlor- chlorine. But do you remember? I mean, the best. Remember the best weekend we had the Fourth of July weekend off, and John McEnroe and I think it was Bjorn Borg 
Where, oh, uh, the, the, we the watched the Wimbledon for about four hours together uh, on a Sunday morning. That was and that were the greatest, one of the greatest sporting, the, one matches. of the longest matches in Wimbledon history. It la- I bet it lasted six, eight hours. They kept having tiebreakers and McEnroe. I think I can't remember who won, but it was uh, I think it was probably it was McEnroe. But they had a set of tiebreakers that that just kept going and going and going, and we made the, we had to. We had the chicken TV dinners. We had the fried chicken TV dinner going. I used to love those. Swanson. Yes, yes. Swanson. <laughs> that was a, the, I've never had fried chicken that quite tasted like that. Do you agree? <laughs> it had a unique flavor all its own. Maybe it was reminiscent of the plastics that they put in it, I think, at the time. That gave it the, the preservatives. <laughs> the, the preservatives gave it a, a unique taste. So that was good. Life was never better. No. So, so Jack, were you at the 49ers Super Bowl win? We were. Win. And you say win. win. Yeah, 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 you, yeah, you say yeah, win yeah. here, you know. Come on, Sorry. John. Yep, yep. So, so, so uh, uh, after that game, how long did it take for the two of you to have a private conversation? With Jim and I or John yeah. and Jim and Jim or John? Either or? way. Either way. Well, you know, we, after, after, I'm, I'm curious after, about two things, you know. Jim, how 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 often do you speak to your dad before an important game or event, and and when you win and you have a big victory in life? How long does it take for you to call your dad? Because I know I make that call pretty quick myself. I'm curious. That call comes real quick uh, when you win. And uh, John, nobody cel- celebrates a win like the Harbaugh's do. There's <laughs> there's no question about it. Uh, leading up to the game, he was he was Jack Harbaugh and Jackie Harbaugh were good. They weren't they weren't rooting for either team. They were they uh, they came by. You know our team hotel, and they went by John's team hotel, and they were uh, they were good. They were good. And then after the game, uh, right after the game, my dad was came down to the locker room. Was one of the first people to talk to me after the game. Gave so, me a hug. So, Jeff, who did you speak to first, John? Thanksgiving we, we, Day, two thousand eleven. Oh, Thanksgiving. Uh, yes. When the Ravens played the Forty Nine. That was Thanksgiving uh, night. Thanksgiving right. evening. That was his 50th wedding anniversary. The next day was our 50th wedding anniversary. Can you imagine? So who did you speak to first after that? Uh, John. Uh, went to John and, and talked to him and then and then came to Jim and I got the quivering lip and the, the beady eyes and, yeah. you know, the, the, the <laughs> you know, one of those moments. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it, the Super Bowl was such a fantastic experience right up until kickoff when the ball was – rolling end over end down to the other end of the field i looked at my wife and i said what are we in for understanding that any kind of emotion at all would signal that you might favor one over the other so for three and a half hours maybe more so with the delay with the lights going out but we uh we didn't make any movement at all didn't scratch our head <laughs> didn't raise our arms didn't smile didn't do anything for fear that there might be might be an indication or a camera that would show that we would prefer one over the other wow so do you think that that, that when the lights went out it affected the game i don't know jim what do you think pace. did it feel different jim um we had had a little experience with it actually we had had uh that might have been our second or third time. It was at least our third time, maybe our fourth time, that the lights had gone out on us. Uh, it, it, it had happened already twice at Candlestick. Yeah, once on a Monday night game and once on a uh, in a preseason game. So I think that was our third time. Um, I mean, the 
the score changed. I mean, we came back after the uh, after the lights went out. We were down. I think we were down 27 or 28 points, mm-hmm. and then we came back to where we had a shot to win it. At the end, when we were down five, we had the ball, got it all the way to the five-yard line. And um, so I don't know. I don't know if it did or didn't. Um, I was really proud of our team for for coming back. And uh, sad we lost, but really proud for my brother. Uh, you know, really happy for my brother and – and um, so I had all those different emotions going, like my dad's talking about, uh, you know, that he has with two sons competing can, can against each can other. Can you imagine, John? You, the game is over, and we're standing up in the in the we were in a box up there, and and uh, the, the 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 confetti was flying, and the lights were gone, and the blaring, and they were bringing out the the podium to present the Super Bowl. And we're looking down, and you feel that there here here's your son that has just won the Super Bowl, maybe the greatest prize in all the sport, and there was no emotion. I mean, he didn't feel he didn't feel like he should feel when your son has just won the Super Bowl, and we couldn't couldn't wrap our arms around that. And so we yeah. went down, and we're with John, and he's jumping up and down, his wife and daughter, and we're so there with them, and we're, we're hugging, and we're going, oh, my goodness. And then you, now it's time to go into the other locker room, and, I mean, it's silence. It's, it's, it's if it's a... You know, silence. That we've all been in those locker rooms. You know, when just and that's the way that way. You went from one emotion to the other, realizing that you you are part of those those two those two locker rooms. And and uh, then with uh, we rode we rode back on the bus with 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 Jim and the family, and just walked the streets of New Orleans with Tom Crean and Joni, our our daughter and her family. We didn't go to either party. We didn't want to do anything. We just walked and walked and walked and. Finally, Doc uh, Doc Rivers was a friend of Tom's. He had Marquette connection, and he texted Tom and he said to Tom, "He said how how your in laws handle this." And Tom said, "Not well." And he said, "Well, that's 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 natural. That's normal." And then he went on to say something that really resonates with us even today: a parent can only be as happy as their unhappiest child, and it all made sense. I mean, it was as if somebody had just lifted a weight off of our shoulders and we understood you know that that emotion that we felt and uh for him to be so wise to share that with us meant, meant a great deal in our lives wow is that when so, you got, and then right when you got that text that's when you headed over to the ravens <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is, that what, is that what lifted the burden, burden off your <laughs> the guilt we didn't feel the guilt anymore let's go let's celebrate oh that's good so, just show them your phone you got something on your phone which is you got a, something about the super bowl on your phone i just i was just charging your phone for you with my super bowl there's something on there there's like a your screensavers it's a picture of oh no you no we're not no no we're not not going there. not sharing that no we're not sharing that okay. it's not a ravens logo no, is no it? it's 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 a <laughs> self-centered thing about me which i refused i will not share <laughs> Okay, I get it. I get it. So, do you guys know that I have a connection to the NFL? I don't think you, you're uh, you know this. I'm the creator of Sunday Ticket. Yes, we are aware of that. Love Sunday oh, Ticket, which which was a lot of fun when we rolled that. Well, out. Well, John, when did you when did that idea come about? It was around '95, and then give me a year either way, uh, Jack. But it was '95, and actually, it, it's a fun story. I'll tell it to you real quick. Uh, a company called Comsat comes up to me, and we had won Sports Bar Operator of the Year and did a lot of consulting for the industry. And they said, "We want you to do a feasibility study on out of market programming." 
So I could buy the Bears signal in Miami, or I could buy – this is just one game. So you get the local coach show and that local game, and you'd pay for that signal. So we did a feasibility study and did all the economics and what bars could pay for commercial licenses and stuff. We did this 100-page document or so and gave it to them, got paid. Then they came back to us and they said, this is great. Give us another document that tells us what does it have to do in a, in a bar or a restaurant to be successful. So we did marketing manuals and ad slicks and all the systems and everything to promote it, sold that to them and gave them that document. Then they gave us the third document to do, which was define all the chain restaurants in the world and companies that would buy it. So we did that. So they took my three documents, and while we were writing the third one, compression happened, which changed the world to satellite dishes to get all seven games, which I believe at the time there were seven games broadcasted at once. So in order to get all seven games, you needed seven of those huge analog satellite dishes. Remember those? Mm-hmm. So with the holes in them, the big ones. So, so uh, when compression happened, now you could pull multiple games down on one dish. It was a big deal. So ComSat took my work to the NFL, said, this is great. We want to license it. The NFL said, this is great. Let's do it ourselves and put me on the board of the NFL advisory board of NFL Enterprises, which you guys know is a commercial side of the NFL. And then I, were, I was on that for three years and, and we worked and assisted with the rollout of Sunday Ticket. That's why I take credit with creating it, but I don't take credit with inventing it because the premise of out-of-market sports programming pre-existed. But it's sort of neat because it's the model that all other leagues use to this very day. It changed the way we watch professional sports. I mean, now you condense it out maybe to the Red Zone channel for some people that don't actually do the ticket. But for years, we all wanted to watch our out-of-market games. If you move, there are fans from every team all over the country. That literally changed how we watched professional sports was the Sunday ticket. It was one of the great things that happened to sports fans. It was like the Mega March Madness package that predates now CBS having Turner partnered for all the March Madness games. But I used to have all my friends come to my house for basketball uh, the tournament because I had to, I bought the March Madness package. Changed how yep. you viewed sports, DirecTV yeah. and I was Sunday in, ticket. I was in on it from the ground floor uh, as an NFL player. They, you could you could get Sunday ticket. So maybe it was like 95 or 6, you know, maybe maybe 97. I don't remember got exactly. Got it for free. Got it for free. Oh, yeah, I got it for free. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Great. Well, for you it was fun because you could get to watch other teams from other cities that, 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 that uh, uh, you typically wouldn't get to see at home. You'd have to watch other tapes to do so. So I'm guessing it, it, it was even helpful to you as a coach or a player. It was very helpful as uh, as both. You could play the watch, play your game, and then watch uh, watch your opponent uh, that you got in the next week or two weeks. You could DVR it. I mean, it was just. I mean, it's just great. Still do it today. You know what came home uh, from this ball game, and it's true. and uh, yeah, wanted to see the highlights of SMU. Wanted to watch the watch the Nebraska game and watched uh, Northwestern game was already over, but uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a great thing. Didn't it also, John, from your perspective, didn't it change sports bars? I mean, the, oh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. completely it's changed the, the game. Yes. In the beginning, uh, we, the signal wasn't available at home. You could only get it on a commercial mm-hmm. license. Mm-hmm. So only sports bars had it, which was uh, great. So we, we did a, you know all the right promotions. But it was fun. The way to make that successful was if you were in Chicago – not to do the Bears on Sunday, because everybody else did the Bears on Sunday in Chicago. So what we would do is we would take the five most popular teams other than the local team. Mm-hmm. So we'd have a Packer backer. We'd yeah. have Patriot fans. Uh, we'd have 40 or 50 of each ones. We'd put them each in front of their own TV, and we'd put uh, a service person in their jersey. Uh, and uh, uh, we would make an awful lot of money by not targeting the local team. 
And, and you know that was a, a great way to make money because again, you know, everybody's typically doing it in Chicago. Everybody's doing a Bears thing, so it was interesting not to. And you'll get a kick out of this. The most successful Monday night football thing I ever did was I hate football Mondays. <laughs> And what I did is we did I Hate Football Mondays, and, and we would pack the bar with women. It was a ladies' night on Monday night. And then we'd still put the game on. So where would you rather watch the game? Where there's 300 women or where there's only 300 guys? <laughs> and that's how we would make money from it back in those days. But uh, uh, you certainly we don't want to have a political discussion. But do, do the lower NFL ratings just in and of itself concern you? I would like to just jump in and say that the ratings from yesterday's game one are up 30-plus percent from last year. They actually, the numbers came in earlier today that the single-header CBS game was way above the charts better as a number than it was last year. And actually, I expect the numbers to kind of follow that, not necessarily 30-plus percent up, but the numbers will probably be up again this year. They were down a little last year, but just to yeah, jump in with good. a number that, uh, that came out earlier today. Well, if yesterday's any indication what the season's going to be like, uh, I mean, those guys – Every game I watched, I mean, they were playing ball. I mean, it was, it was like a playoff intensity, you know, week one, and and yeah, I was just really impressed. I mean, just with the with the precision of the teams, with the with the effort of the players. I mean, it was it was all out every game I watched. Totally agree. It's interesting to me. A uh, uh, football is, is the the uh, the common ground for us all sports. You know, old, young, black, white, tall, short, left, right. It doesn't matter. During those minutes of a football game, we're all one. We're all cheering for the same thing. You know, there's this commonality. It, it homogeneously pulls us all together. And I worry when the divisiveness of politics gets into the undivisiveness of sports. You know what I mean, guys? And I sort of, just in a generic sense, I, I, uh, 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 I don't deny one's right to do so. I just worry about its impact long term. And, you know, I want sports to be about sports. And uh, it worries me sometimes when it's not. I hear you, but I, I just, I mean, going off of this week's games, I mean, it was. Looked good. Gosh, it looked good. I mean, every team looked hungry. Every team was, uh, I mean, just, they were, uh, I mean, they were firing. I mean, the guys running the ball, the guys tackling. I mean, it was, you know, it, Compare that to any other sport. You know, when they open the season, they they, they just kind of they just kind of mush around and glide. They glide like a like an airplane going down the runway. You know, it just builds up speed, then it then it eventually takes off. But I mean, these guys were going, and they had rain games on non-field turf fields. So you had mud on uniforms. Yeah, it looked like oh yeah, like the old days. Yeah, yeah. we need a snowstorm game. Is what we need. <laughs> uh, we can me, me and my dad. Me and my dad have been advocating like. Sports and baseball and football. Dust. We need they dust. Get dust back in, at least for one week, you know, where you, you bring the grass back we, in. We have so many different weeks, you know, like different weeks, and they're all great weeks, but we need a dust week. <laughs> they, got, they, got, they got the color week where they both color teams rush. work color rush. Military, we uniforms, is, we do it. Let's, yeah. let's do a dust. Let's do it. Yeah, dust. Get, get so, back so, to the old Jim, school. Do you have a favorite sport that you watch or, or, or stay involved in other than football? Uh, baseball. You're a baseball uh, fan. I am a baseball fan. I uh, I like all kind of, I like all kind of sports. I mean, I like basketball a lot. Uh, you a hockey fan at all? I do like hockey. I like hockey. Uh-huh. I like uh, I like them all. I really do. I like did the Olympics. Did you watch your Golden Knights? I like golf. The hockey team, Las Vegas, the Golden Knights. I haven't caught them. No. Ah, okay. They they uh uh uh. uh 
wound up with the greatest uh, inaugural season of any sports franchise. They were just, they oh, just, yeah, they I did hear that. Yeah, they, didn't they right. just, they relocated yeah, Expansion their, team moved yeah. and then oh, went to the cup finals. Yeah, had heard the, that, but I didn't see, him, didn't see him play any games. Yeah, went to the Stanley Cup. It's a lot of fun. Uh, let me know when you're in Vegas. I'd love to go to a game with you. It would be a blast. Most of the time, I watch here. You know, we got the we got the great basketball team here that made the uh, the finals, and we got uh, our hockey team, our hockey team was four. in the Frozen yeah. Four. Yeah. Our softball team is great. We got we just walk we just walk down the street. And we catch all kind of great well, sports right here in Ann Arbor. And John, so because you're a Vegas Knight Golden, uh, you're a you're a Vegas uh, Golden Knight fan. They just traded this week for Max Pacioretty. He's a I former saw. Michigan hockey player, so he's a big guy from these parts that we uh, big fans of. Good player. Yeah, I was Brother. captain of the Canadians, so, so uh, uh, we're, it's ha- we're good to have him. But I'm on a hard out, guys, so I hate to have to end this, but I do. <laughs> this has been a blast to have both of you, in, and I'd love to do it. Jeez, I want, I want to uh, hard out. I want to, my brother owns a bar in Kansas City, Missouri, called Merle's Amer- American Tavern. Yeah. If you're ever in Peculiar, Missouri, if you could just stop by and you know kind of check pointers. it out, get him some pointers. Thursdays, Merle, Merle comes on Thursdays, doesn't comes he? Comes Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Merle's American Tavern, Peculiar, oh, Peculiar Missouri. How far, how, far from, how far from Kansas City? That's uh, uh, it's on the outer out, outskirts. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, just the outskirts of Kansas City. Just by coincidence. 20 minutes. Everything in Kansas City is 20 minutes away. I'm going to be there in two weeks. So well, Merle's American Tavern, John. We can't wait to tell John you're coming. <laughs> you storm it to the kitchen. <laughs> you yell a little bit. I'm going to text you his number. <laughs> John Fearborn. I, I love it. This was a blast. Let's do it again soon, okay? Hey, great. Physically. Thanks, John. Thanks. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're taking a quick pause for thanks to our sponsor. It's the best fight in boxing. On Saturday, September 15th, live from T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Canelo Alvarez and Triple G Golovkin will collide for the middleweight championship of the world for a second time. A rematch between two of the most explosive, heavy-handed fighters in the sport, and they square off for a battle for middleweight and pound-for-pound supremacy. World champion Canelo Alvarez is 49-1-2 with 34 knockouts, and he'll square off against WBC, WBA, IBO middleweight world champion Govalkin, who's 37-0-1 with 33 KOs, and they have promised that they will not leave the rematch in the judges' hands. This will be a can't-miss event for sports fans everywhere. The biggest star in the sport taking on a wildly recognized baddest man on a planet. So don't miss Canelo versus Golovkin Saturday, September 15th at 8 p.m., 5 p.m. Pacific, live on pay-per-view. Do you like poker? You want to play me? Because I'm in a tournament on September 21st in Las Vegas, and I'd love it if you join us. So at 5.30 p.m., I'm playing poker with Jack Binion, Doyle, Texas, Dolly Brunson, and Daniel Kid Polk and Negreanu, who are both Hall of Fame inductees, Barry Shulman, who's a two-time bracelet winner, and Jack McClellan, who's also a Hall of Fame inductee. We're all playing for Keep Memory Alive, which is a great charity and a great cause. If you want to play poker and have a great time, the buy-in is cheap, the prize is $10,000, and it's all for charity. So come play me on Friday, September 21st at 5.30 p.m. and register by September 14th, and you can register at keepmemoryalive.org slash events. That's keepmemoryalive.org slash events. Let's play some poker.
I got to tell you, that was a real thrill talking to Jim Harbaugh, a legend. I loved watching him play, and I love watching him coach. And to have his father, Jack, there as well was, was an unbelievable conversation. That was Shut really a blast down. for me. Now comes my favorite part of the show, talking to down. you, our callers. So, KC, we got some good ones this week. All right, John, so we've got uh, Joel from Baltimore who's got a uh, quick question about um, working with sports organizations, and uh, he's got a new sales position coming up and wants to know what to do. Joel, you're on with John. Mr. Topper, good afternoon. How are you? Good. Nice to talk to you, buddy. What's going on? Uh, my question is this. Uh, as, you're, as he was just stating, uh, an opportunity to work with a sports organization and securing their travel for them. And my business partner and I, it's a young, it's a young startup, just a few months old, but we've been given an opportunity to talk with the people that can make the decisions. And so worked on a presentation and just waiting to hear something from there. On a personal note, uh, interviewing, interviewed, well, went through four interviews for another job, and it's a sales job. I, I do intelligence analysis for organizations, government organizations before that. So my question to you is, I've had a lot of accomplishments. At what point does something become, do you, do you stop going after new things because it's not that you can't do them, but when, when do you recognize that? Maybe something is too much for you, or it's just not cut out for you to do. Has there been? Have you ever been through a moment where you're like, "Yes, you know you can accomplish it," but there are just certain things like you going into the NFL right now as a quarterback. It's just physically impossible. That's obvious. But is there ever something where you just look at yourself, or you look at a situation, and you're like, "Yes, this is a great opportunity," but this just isn't for me, and it's not because you can't do it, but there's just something else at play. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I do. Being in my position now that I'm so well known, I get all these opportunities thrown at me. So people call me and say, listen, I got money. We'll fund you in something. Oh, geez, I just can't. I can't take the money because it's there. That's the toughest one to say no to is when somebody calls you and say, listen, I got a couple million bucks. I'll give it to you to put into a business. I'll partner with you. I'll let you have 60 percent of it. If it isn't right, you've got to say no. So that's the toughest one. Here's the way I look at it, Joe. And I've mentioned this before on this podcast. I look at a project as a ball, and I have about six or eight balls on my desk. I can only move so many balls every day. You with me if you hear what I'm saying? I have to, I have to move every ball every day. If I can't move every ball every day, then i got too many balls or something is wrong. So first is the resource of time. Do you have the time to do it well? And when you consider time, okay. you got to think to yourself, money per hour, money per day, what is time worth to me? So you don't want to give away something that will pay you more for your time for something that will pay you less in your time. Then I think that mm. the, the biggest part of your question to me is so much personality oriented. So I'm going to ask it back to you. You said, when do you know you have enough, John? When do you say, you know what, I'm happy where I am. I don't need to take another project. I don't need to go. But, you know. Some people just never are. Unfortunately, Joe, I'm one of them. I'm always interested in this next thing. I want to do the next thing. I want to do it. So I'm inclined to do everything. So it's hard for me to say no sometimes, just like uh, you're experiencing. It becomes the economy of time. I don't want to let people down. So I'm not going to become a partner in a deal I don't have the time to do. I don't want to let myself down. So time is a big deal. And then, you know, the, the other aspect is, if you're having fun and you're really enjoying yourself, why screw it up? <laughs> Thank you, John. I, well, Mr. Saffer, I really appreciate that. 
you've you've been amazing. Thank you, and I I love the the show and both the on the uh, television and the podcast. But uh, I I love the podcast because it's I feel you're able to reach out more directly to your to your audience that you know, and you can be more precise and more surgical in in helping people. And just really thank you very much. Uh, thanks. You know, honestly, Joe, I, I love doing the podcast even more than the TV show. It's great to be able to talk to people like yourself. And, you know, it's much more casual. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, I almost feel like I'm sitting in your living room with you, buddy. So so anyway, yeah. it was great to talk. And uh, we'll send you an email with contact information for a good friend of mine, Dirk Smith, who is in that business. Hopefully, thank you, Dirk. Take care, Joe. Have a nice day. So we've got Matthew from Boston who Want some expert advice on uh, starting a bar in your 20s? Ah, you know, uh, uh, that's a tough one. How are you, Matthew? Hey, John. How you doing? Good. Nice to talk with you. So are you in college you now? What was that? I'm sorry. Are you in college now? I actually just recently graduated. Gotcha. So uh, how old are you? Can I ask? I'm 23. Okay. So you've been going to bars for two years. Yes. Yes. So, so uh, uh, do you like to drink? Um, I like. I mean, I like going out. I like the atmosphere, just going out to bars, which is really why. Uh, I mean, I wanted to open up my own bar before that, but definitely going out more with friends and being in that environment has has helped has helped push that idea. So, so uh, uh, let me. Uh, uh, I always think, you know, people, you know, the term blue skying. Tell, oh, it's great, man! You make a lot of money. Blah 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 blah. Let me share with you that, you know, the challenge to the bar business is most people that want to go into it for social reasons or for drinking reasons, you know, will tend to, to stumble. And the people that go into it have to go into it because they have a love for the business of it. And I share that with you because the bar business is really difficult. Unlike the T-shirt business where you buy 100 T-shirts, you put them on the shelves, you come back in the morning, you got 100 T-shirts. They're all counted in a computer system, et cetera. A bar has controllable expenses. And if the liquor cost is a percentage of revenue is off by 5% and the food cost is off by 3%, you're going to lose money. And what happens in the bar business is, is if the controllable expenses, beverage costs, cash control, food cost, labor cost percentages, if you can't manage those elements, bars lose money really, really quick, Matthew. And, yeah. and, you know, I want to caution you. The average bar in America will make about 12 to 15% of every dollar it takes in. That's it. So if this is off by 5% and that is off by 5%, as if off by 3%, whammo, we're done. We're in the red. So understand that, that it's an unbelievable business, buddy. I love it. Nobody loves it more than me. But it's a tough business. You got to get in in the morning. You got to be there at 2 in the morning. Understand that to be successful in it is really, really hard. And if you're willing to fight for that, then do it. If you want to do it to have fun and, and if the social motivation is leading you, think twice about it and consider the workload before you make your final decision. Make sense? Oh, no, I, 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 it does make sense. I actually, I really do want to get into it for the business side and, and watching the watching the show Bar Rescue and, and kind of doing my own research into it. I, I definitely feel like I could, uh, once I get into it, I could, I could really put in the work that, that it takes to be successful. And, um, and like I said, the more the more I look into it, the more I'm just inspired to to put in the work and to be successful and to really take that next step is to, to open up my own place. Well, let me let me share another thought with you because because uh, I love what you're saying, buddy. You sound like you got just the right fra- frame of mind for it. The bar part of it is a lot easier than the kitchen part. So 
I wouldn't have your first operation have a big kitchen operation. Make sense? Mm-hmm. I would open yep. a bar with a small kitchen initially. Learn kitchen operations before you get into you know a larger food operation. So I would do a bar that is a small kitchen with a you know a very abbreviated menu, great burgers, maybe pizza, something like that. Or I would do a bar without a kitchen to start, because again, most of the failure happens on the food side is where the money tends okay. to get lost. And uh, that's it, buddy. If you can buy an existing one where the bar is already in it and it's been rented before, that's a great way to save money. Otherwise, I'll throw some quick numbers out at you if you got a pen handy. Bar is going to cost uh, you about a thousand dollars per foot. That's the cost of a bar. So including the wood, the stainless steel, the soda systems, the cash registers, everything. So to put in a 40-foot bar professionally is going to cost you about $40,000. To build the space, it'll cost you anywhere from about $135 to $200 per square foot. So if you take a look at the square footage you're going to take, that's how much it'll cost you to build it. And that's about how much it costs for you to construct the bar. You can start to build a budget together from that, Matthew. Mm -hmm. Okay. I hope it helps, buddy. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, just one more thing before I go. Um, I, I saw the, the, Puerto, the Puerto Rico episode, and I thought the work that you did down there was amazing. Just uh, want to let you know that. Yeah, that was actually a really powerful week for me. I cried most of the time that I was down there. So leaving and leaving them in a better place was really, really uh, 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 amazingly rewarding to me. As a matter of fact, listen to next week's podcast because Janet and Victor are going to be on, who are the owners from Puerto Rico. And I haven't spoken to them since I got my hug and got in the car and drove away. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to them next week. So take care, Matt. See you, John. Thank you very much for taking my call. John, we've got Matthew from Lake George, New York, who uh, has started a book club with his daughter after finishing No Excuses for the second time. Oh, man. How old is your daughter, Matt? Uh, she's She's 26 years old. She works for the mouse down in Orlando and has been struggling with uh, advancing herself through the ranks for the last three years. Four positions, a little bit slight, slight increase in uh, salary, so I wanted her to keep the pace up and not feel kind of beaten down. So, so did you buy her a book of No BS? Yes, I did. did. I, I sent her a book, and then what we did by email was exchange each chapter one by one, all six. It was incredible. Wow. So you went through each of the six excuses together, talked about each chapter together, and turned it into sort of a a mutually self-help exercise. <laughs> yes. Even even what she wrote, I found myself getting, uh, again, a reevaluation of what I had already read the first time. Amazing. Wow. So what do you think she got out of it? That, that, that um, really impacted her. Well, it's funny. Uh, she just had an interview two weeks ago and uh, just sent me three letters, three times, which was PMA, PMA, PMA. Wow. She just, she's just going forward and just kind of trying to truck through it. So how were excuses affecting her life? A little bit, a little bit, sure. Um, she found herself kind of weighted down and they don't like me they're not accepting me i can't move i can't move forward with management and i said it's a big company 35,000 people it'll take you time to move through the ranks just take you know take your patience and then i started to say well here's a way we could evaluate it by looking at this you know your book it's a, it's a great concept exactly what she was dealing with 
Wow. So, so th- that's really terrific to hear. Now, obviously, you're the daddy, so you're a few years older than she is. Did it impact you differently than her? Um, to a point, it, it actually allowed me, because being in the same industry you are, I'm a general manager of a hotel. I oh. want to start to, and I want to start to basically uh, start to consult. And I was looking at this book as a, as a way to get me off of my type of uh, kind of situation. Gotcha. Well, you know, consulting has changed my life. I've been doing it now over 30 years. I've been in business for myself as a consultant. And you know what I found as a consultant and as a hotel guy? Yes, you are. I, I believe yeah, me, I was there all stretch of the way back from uh, King of Prussia, the first nightclub and bar show. All through the 90s, I used to bring my crew when I owned a nightclub on Long Island, and we'd come out and see you every year out in Vegas. Wow. So so, so you know, but you know what, what what's uh, 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 terrific about uh, uh, what you're doing is uh, uh, you're freeing yourself, really, from these things. And I think that for your daughter, it's somewhat of a freeing experience. But, you know, in, in the bar business for years – when we uh, we used to create bars, everybody had an excuse for not to go forward, for not to do it. You know, I don't want to do this one. That. And it took me about 120 bar rescues to figure this out. And as a hotel guy, Matt, you relate to this. Every person on bar rescue would say to me, they're failing because of something else. They never said, hey, man, I'm failing because of me. <laughs> you know, they never would yeah. say that. So that self-accountability became really important. And as a, as a fellow hotel guy, you know, our department heads will do that stuff. Housekeeping has excuses and engineering has excuses and food and beverage has excuses. And sometimes I find as a hotel general manager, you know, our job is to get those excuses eliminated from the team below us. And, correct. Uh, correct. And we almost have to shoulder them to a point and then reevaluate and then kind of uh, kind of emphasize to them, it's not the biggest thing in the world. Don't make an excuse. Embrace the problem and let's move forward with it. Yeah, that's the truth. Well, how's your hotel doing? Business good? Great summer. Great summer. Um, and I was just sharing with uh, KC. It's funny, but uh, we're only an hour and a half away from where Grossingers was. And uh, I think fondly about the Catskills once in a while. It's nice to be up here in Lake George, but... Uh, you know, again, I got those memories like you do with cat skills. Yeah, what, what Matt is talking about is in the early 80s, uh, 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 I worked at a hotel and ran a hotel called Grossinger's in the Catskill Mountains, which was one of the largest hotels in America at the time. It was 1,200 acres, had three nine-hole golf courses, our own ski mountain with lifts. And Do you know, Matt, the Grossinger has had the Grossinger's had the first snowmaking equipment in America on that little Get mountain. out of here. Uh, uh, wow. Wow. That was a that was a great way. So I was in my twenties. You know, I really learned my management chops working at Grossinger's, and uh, it's a great place. And Lake George is beautiful as well. So Thank congratulations. You. Let's talk about the book club for a moment. So what are you doing? Tell us. Yeah. So so basically, we took took this, embraced it. We we shared this with our first book, and we're going to move on to other books and and continue to again things that could help us with what we want to do in our world. And I think it allows her also to separate herself from the humdrum of just kind of work and nothingness sometimes, you know? It's also so, a great reason um, to talk to each other. I'm sorry? It's, it's a great reason to talk to each other, too. You know, oh, it's phenomenal. Uh, Everybody's blown away by the idea, and we are, too. And we're, we think it's the funniest thing in the world because we never thought of it until I read your book, and then she started 
sharing her struggles of what she's feeling. And I said, you know, you're not feeling anything that we all don't deal with. John brings it up in his book. Let me share this with you. Wow. That's unbelievable. You know, when my daughter was young, I used to travel to Asia all the time because I was opening Hyatt's and working for Hyatt's and Sheridan's back then. And, uh, we didn't have internet. We didn't have Skype or any of those things then. So my daughter, I would make her fax me her homework every afternoon in Asia, Matt. And I would get up at 5 in the morning, which was 5 in the afternoon Chicago time. And I would do her homework with her every night with those curly pieces of paper on my desk with weights and uh, all over them. And it wasn't a homework. It was it caused us to talk every day. And I'm guessing your book club is doing that. You guys are talking about other things and learning about each other when you go through this process, I would think. Yeah, it, it's been phenomenal. It really, really has, and I can't thank you enough. And, and again, kind of, look, um, I'll say this also, the podcast, you are moving at breakneck speed. You're an amazing human being. Um, this stuff with Lewis was great. I'm just, I'm blown away by what you're bringing to the table. I really am. As a fan, as a, as a lifelong person who knows from you from Michael and Barr all the way to now, and, and, and the way you're moving through this, this podcast, kudos. I'm amazed. I'm just like rocking because I knew you could do this. Well, thank you, buddy. It, it, it's because it's because of people like you supporting me that it happens. But this is my favorite part of the show for this reason, Matt. And I really well, love talking to you, buddy. And this has been really nice. So, congratulations on the book club. And I think it's an amazing story. And I hope other people, fathers and kids, will realize this is a great way to connect and grow together uh, uh, and learn about each other and and just make our relationships more meaningful. So, thanks, buddy. Thank nice you. to talk. Thank you. Take care. This was a lot of fun this week. I love talking to Jim and Jack. I love talking to Brad and catching up. But most important, I love talking to all of you. So if you'd like to talk to me, just send me an email to podcast at johntaffer.com. That's podcast at johntaffer.com. And we'll get you on the show and we'll talk. Also, hit subscribe at Apple Podcast. Go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app. Subscribe and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Also, like me. Share some comments, and don't forget, comment on social media or send me an email. I love hearing from you. And I'll hear from you again, and you'll hear from me again next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 